Welcome to episode 275 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. And if you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings and reviews help new people find the show. And you know what? If you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I know told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 275 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Keith Tomasek. Keith is an award-winning arts marketing consultant and the founder of Stratford Theatre Reviews, as well as the host and creator of the Performers Podcast. So how, I mean, uh, have you found it, uh, you know, with the, the performers podcast, um, it, have you found it difficult to, 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 have you found the motivation hard or have you found like it hard to find people to, to come on or, or what, what's happening with, with, with the performers podcast right now? I just found the motivation hard. <laughs> I gotta be honest. It was, uh, yeah. you know, I found the motivation hard, so I kind mm-hmm. of let it go. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. And I did one a little while ago with Dan Shamroy, which was so it felt great because he talked about mm. taking care of himself and yeah. self-care. And Dan's a great guy. But, yeah, the motivation's been difficult for sure. I mean, motivation's been is definitely really hard in pandemic times because, I mean, for I think from March through to like uh, July, I had to struggle to motivate myself to do pretty much anything. That's right. That's exactly me too. Bordered on creative. So, you know, it's hard to do it. But I also found that I, like for me with Stageworthy, I felt like I, I, I just needed to keep talking to people. You know, it was like the only time I was connecting to people was when I was doing the podcast. I, I was, I got so depressed. I couldn't do anything literally. Like it was bad, but it's great now, but it was bad at the beginning. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to talk shop a little bit, like one of the things that, uh, that I'm curious about for you is like when, when you started doing a podcast, Uh when, like, when did you start and, and what made you start doing one? Um, I used to listen to pod when I lived in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, when podcasts just began, I used to have, Are you just cut out on to me? my? Oh yeah, sorry. I just I've just opened up something on my. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop fucking around. Hang on. I just tried to open up something to find out how long I've been podcasting, but I'm gonna shut it down. Um. Yeah. So I had a two hour drive. Well, two hours there, two hours back. So I was in the car mm. a lot. Um. Mm. 
and I needed something to listen to and the local radio was no good. And that was when podcasting had just taken off. So mm -hmm. I listened to a few different podcasts back then. And then when I got back to Canada and started running Stratford Festival Reviews, um, I was just interested in the medium. I like radio. Audio is my favorite medium of all. And mm -hmm. I just decided mm -hmm. to do a podcast and it took off. Like it was a big hit and it, it's been almost six or seven years. Like it was, a, it's, I've been doing, I started a long time ago. But I'm not like you. You're a machine. Like I've only got a, I've only got a hundred and some odd episodes. You just are pumping them out. It's amazing. There's a there's a trick to it, and that is to do a blitz. I do a blitz every so often, where I'll just like do as many interviews as I can, so I have a bunch in the bank. Sure. It looks like it looks like I'm a machine, but I do that for like two three weeks, and then I'm really lazy after that. <laughs> That's funny. Well, whatever it's working for you, whatever it is, it totally yeah, yeah. works. Yeah. So I just like audio, and like you, and I also was alone in London. So I'm in London, Ontario, and I wanted to talk to really cool and interesting people. So it, back then, a podcast was you could talk to anybody, and I did. Mm. It was great. Well, one of the things that I found is that it's pretty rare for somebody to say no. Absolutely. And even if they say yes, they usually they often follow up with like, "But I don't even know if I could fill a, an hour of time." That's and it's funny. always like, "You can." Everybody can. <laughs> um, have you found your downloads going up? Like, I'm honestly not checking because I haven't done anything. Is, are your numbers today? So the podcast industry, I did go to, I went to the, what's it called? I went to PodCamp, not PodCamp. I went to, what's it called? I went to the big podcasting conference in October. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so the, the what people were saying there was that the numbers went drastically down in March and April and, and then summer is always quiet. And then they are picking up a little bit, but they're still down year over year. Is that your experience as well in terms of downloads? I mean, I've mine have been pretty consistent. Oh, good. Um, I did see a dip in March, but mm. I March, April, I but I felt like that was, I mean, everything did. That's right. You know, so I wasn't surprised by that. But, you know, I, I it's been pretty consistent. The numbers that I see... Um, today are pretty close to what I was seeing before everything shut down. Good. So that's that's good. That's really good. But I think a lot of that, like I've enjoyed talking to people about how they're dealing with a now digital theatrical world and how right. how to do that. And I think there's there's interest in that. You know, bring people on who've who've done it, and other people find it interesting how it's being done. Interesting. So, yeah. Did I tell you that in the last two months I've helped sell four hundred thousand dollars worth of tickets to virtual events? Uh, I, no. Okay. Please, <laughs> please tell me, tell me. That's true. How? 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 Okay. So let's talk about that because um, in the time that 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 you that you've sort of like let podcasting slide away a little bit, you've been doing more about the digital marketing. So let's start with that. Is there is there a difference between marketing a digital event to marketing a live event there's a big difference yeah and so I, I i i did some you know when the pandemic happened and my clients that i work with artists and theater companies needed help we did some live performances in march and everyone was like oh this is great but it felt and we were making money for them you know the artists were making money and the companies were selling tickets to digital events but it it felt like disaster relief it didn't feel sustainable, you know? Mm. So I sat down with uh, myself and some other people that I work with, and we tried to create and learn everything we could, a model that would allow artists and theater companies to 
trying to build some sustainable revenue through virtual streaming. Mm -hmm. So the biggest difference that we were able to identify were two. Uh, there's no scarcity with virtual tickets. So the audience consumer perceives there's an endless amount of supply and there's no rush to get tickets. So the data, and this was um, reaffirmed, I went to the International Ticketing Conference, I attended it, but I also spoke there just a little while ago. That's the data. People are buying tickets much closer to the actual performance date. So that's a huge change. And you have to adapt your marketing strategies around that. And the other thing is, and this seems less obvious, but it's still important. So there's no scarcity, but you can create scarcity. You can create other, you know, there's not as many seats. There, there's unlimited amount of seats, but you can create other scarcity uh, options. The other big thing is status. And when I say status, you kind of go, what? And we're talking about opening night versus the rest of the run. We're talking about a rush to get the best seats in the house, uh, the ability to sit where my friends are, the ability to see, to be seen in that, you know, those front five or 10 rows or whatever. And as much as we kind of pretend that doesn't matter, there is a certain status associated with being in those seats or having those seats or being at opening night, you know. So that's another thing that doesn't exist in uh, virtual ticket selling that we have to kind of figure out, okay, how do we create that kind of status? So those are the two main differences and they're very real, um, but there are ways around those for sure. Um, what, uh, you know, I, just to jump back, because back in March, when I first started seeing digital productions, there was a lot of giving it away. Yeah. There was a lot of, I'm doing a free performance, I'm doing a free performance. And that was so necessary at the time. We, like, I think that people were feeling like, like we just, like people are so stressed, let's just do it. But I also feel like it set a dangerous precedent as far as trying to, you know, create art, but also be able to sell that art. Um, when people are giving stuff away for free, it's harder for people to say, now I need you to pay for it. That's you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And that was the disaster. That's what, you know, we kind of came up with the, the disaster relief period. Um, but to your point, for some artists, it works. Like I've got an artist that I work with in um, New York. Her name's Kat Edmondson. She's a, a, a vintage jazz sort of performer. She sounds kind of like Blossom Deary, except she's got a more contemporary edge. And she does lots of, you know, the American Songbook, American Standard Songbook, and she does lots of Broadway tunes. Um, and she was on a 42-city tour and got canceled. And she started doing live free shows. And after I had success with some other um, artists charging, you know, $20, $30 a ticket and generating revenue, I reached out to Kat. And I was like, hey, let's charge money. And when she explained to me what she was doing and why she was doing it, it made sense for her. Hmm. So she did, we worked together and I'm still working with Kat now and we are upping her game in terms of we're getting more money per performance and we're working harder and spending more money to promote the free performances, but we're getting more money per performance than she was getting before. Hmm. So for her, it's all about building the brand and extending her reach and keeping in contact. So when she goes back on tour, those people are going to be the first ones to buy tickets. And in the meantime, mm -hmm. I'll be honest, she's actually doing quite well with the weekly. She does a regular weekly Sunday night show at 7 mm -hmm. p.m. And um, it's going well. Yeah. So what, what, in terms of like creating 
marketing for digital show because I think a lot of us, especially independent theater artists, we were we we worked at it. We sort of had like a thing we understood about promotion and thing the way that promotion would work for a live show, how far in advance to start right. doing things yeah. and all of that stuff. But with digital tickets, like you mentioned, people buy tickets closer to the date. And a lot of that has to do with, I think, people don't have to make plans exactly. to go see the show. They don't have to, I don't have to arrange, you don't have to arrange babysitting, you have to plan for dinner, you don't have to plan what, what you know, you're going to go home after work, all of this stuff. You, you just do it and you sit on your couch at home. Now I think we just don't understand anything about about how marketing works, and I think a lot of people are just like, I guess I'll create a Facebook event. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, um, so you, everything you said is exactly right, and again, it depends on the particular artist and the relationship they have with their with their audience. And I will tell you, this is something that I heard over and over again at the International Ticketing Association conference, and we're talking about people in small companies to, you know, the woman in charge of ticketing for the entire Burning Man festival, the, and that's a big deal, that festival, the overarching theme was if you haven't already been consistently communicating with your audience on social media, on email, now you really need to be maintaining that consistent form of communication to be there. So you're developing the relationship and that way, when you do have something to offer, whether it's a show or maybe your friend's show or even a podcast episode, people are more receptive because they're aware of what you're doing. So I'm working with a guy who, who, who hasn't been online for a little while. And we just had a conversation today and I'm like, you need to tell them you haven't been online because you're writing a book and it's going to get published. It's already on Amazon and it's on, you can pre-order it now, but he kind of vanished for six weeks. And I'm like, don't disappear. People want to know what you're up to. Um, so that's the very, the kind of baseline is to maintain that relationship with your audience through whatever it is, wherever your audience is, if it's Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or email, ideally email, um, to really keep that relationship solid during this time and, and have something to say. Don't just gratuitously throw stuff out there. But then when you're ready with something to offer, they're more likely to understand, you know, how it's fits into your canon of work. Oh my gosh, just my phone. Sorry, dude. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things that I think is it, for a lot of independent artists, especially, um, that's really hard is, you know, you can start a, a, an email list, but I know, cause I used to work in email marketing that you have to send stuff out on the regular. Like you need to really engage with your audience. But like you said, you can't just send out bullshit every day or once a week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It has to be something. That's right. So, you know, when you're as a, as an artist, when you're creating your campaigns, how do you, how do you stretch it out? How do you find all of that stuff? Cause you can't just like, it's a little, you can like throw out a tweet and, and that's like 280 characters or whatever. Mm -hmm. But a uh, email has to have a little bit more. It has to have a call to action. It has to do all this sort of stuff. How do you how do you create a campaign that can that can sustain in that way? Well, on some level, it you can send out an email. I just sent out an email to my list a little while ago when Christopher Plummer passed away. It was three paragraphs. You know, there was not much to it, but I know because of my relationship and my audience's relationship with the Stratford Festival they wanted to hear about 
Christopher Plummer, and I had put together a, a blog post that was, you know, based on some of the beautiful archival uh, photos that the Stratford Festival put out. And I just thought, oh, I put it on my blog, I put it on Twitter, I put it on Facebook, I might as well send it to my email list. Mm -hmm. I don't really have much to say. It's all in the blog post, but I just want to say, hey, you know, we're thinking of Christopher Plummer. I don't remember what the second paragraph was. And the third paragraph was, you know, here's a link. I hope, you know, you get as much out of this as I did or something. Mm -hmm. It was really just a touching base now. Here's something. But if you're producing a show, you got to think about the life cycle of the show from the, the concept of the show's inception. So as soon as you start working on that show, okay, we're, we're building something. If you have a, an email list or a Facebook page, get out there and start posting. But and the other word used that was really important is consistently. Hmm. So uh, I'm a big advocate of the metaphor, and I don't really know how this goes. <laughs> but it's the concept of a drop of water over time will you know create a rivet in or a, a space in a rock but you can turn a bunch of water on all at once and nothing happens so it's the concept of the drip over time is really really powerful one small drip consistently so think about your audience think about you know i have a, my email list always goes out at six in the morning that might not be right for someone else's but it, at least my audience can depend on me to be there on that usually it's sunday at six in the morning so if you're building a show, you say, well, you know, it's going to take us two months to conceive the show. It's going to be on on Zoom or StreamYard or whatever at a certain period of time. You know, it's, okay, well, let's see what we can release once every two weeks, and let's make it at the same time once every two weeks. And I'm talking, it could be Instagram, could be Facebook, could be email. Because unfortunately, human beings, unfortunately, I mean, we're, we're pretty, our lives are mundanely routine. And it sounds horrible to say that, but it's, pretty much true. <laughs> and there's tools you can use uh, on Twitter. Specifically, there's a great tool. I forget what it's called off the top of my head. And you can find out when your audience is most likely to be there. Because on Twitter, you know, your lifespan is not that long. Mm -hmm. So I was working with the theater in, in Toronto, and they had wonderful tweets during the day. And then we did some research and found out, you know what, your audience is online at 1030 after the show but you guys are all at home and you haven't scheduled any tweets. Well, that's because at 1030, they want to talk about the show. They want to see what other people are saying about the show. Mm -hmm. So that theater company started tweeting. You're, you're sending automated tweets, you know, at 1030, just to be there for their audience. Hmm. You know, one of the things I, and, and this is sort of something that, I, that a lot of people, you, if you were going to do an email list, you need to consider, you know, what day is everybody already receiving all their emails on? Um, yeah, you can overthink that. I don't sure, know. but I mean, I remember, you know, when I worked in email marketing, I think it was Wednesday was like this massive day for email. And it's like everybody was sending their emails on Wednesday because somebody had published some kind of blog post that Correct. you should send all your emails on Wednesday. And so everybody was. And so in some ways, you got sort of trapped in like, if you sent mail on Wednesdays as well, along with everybody else, well, you kind of got lost in it. You're right. Absolutely. But then again, as you say, you can overthink it because maybe your audience is not the audience that's getting emails from uh, Air Canada and from Walmart and other companies that are also sending emails at the same time. Exactly. It's really getting to know your audience and listening to them. I was just I was just listening to a podcast with I'm not a YouTube like I, I help clients with YouTube, but I'm not a YouTube nut. But there's a guy called Mr. Beast. Are you familiar with Mr. Beast? So 
He's one of vaguely, these, vaguely, vaguely. He's the YouTube guy that like he gives away house. One of his big things right. was he ordered a pizza. The pizza delivery guy came and he gave the pizza delivery guy the house. Hmm. That's how much money this guy makes off YouTube because that's what right. he does. <laughs> yes. And um, his producer, whatever you want to call it, was on this podcast and just talking about, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. I got to know this guy's audience by reading every comment. For the first few months I worked with them, I understood mm. what they were thinking about. I understood when they were commenting. So that's when they're online. Mm. And this is a guy, you know, we're talking millions of dollars. And, and he's like, you wouldn't believe how much time for me to, to get this audience to where they are. I started out by really listening to my audience. And it's the old mm. street performer. I used to be a street performer, Phil. And when I first started, it was me and my buddy Gary Yates. We'd been a little corner in old Montreal, the, the crappy corner. No one was there. And we wanted to get to the big corner. And all we had to do was... Our act didn't change much, but we just started listening to the audience to develop our act. Mm. And then we eventually made it to the big uh, square in Jacques Square in Old Montreal. And, you know, we have to, we realized, okay, we can't just start with all our best stuff. We have to listen to the audience when they're excited. How do we build anticipation? And then when we're done, it's kind of like being on the internet. We have to have a call to action and get them to give us money because they can just walk away. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's listening to your audience sounds really easy, but it's super, super important. It's super time consuming. Like if you are, um, if you're doing a, if you're doing theater and mm -hmm. I mean, in the, in the old days, every so often, you know, theater company, then they put out a trailer for their show and cause they think, cause they think they have to, and you watch the trailer and it's like three to four minutes long, mm -hmm. just too long. And it just goes on forever and it tells you too much, but not enough about the show. That's it's very funny. artistic and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, you look at like, what are the views on this thing? And it's not getting a lot of views because it's not grabbing people off the top. They're expecting everybody to sit with it for the entire four to five minutes that the trailer is. Um, and you have to look at like, not just in theater. I think we have to look at, not just what, what we've done in the past, but there's so much examples of what other people have done that we can see and use and steal and, <laughs> and, 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 and pay homage to because there's so much work that works. But we can't just go ahead and be like, well, that works for them, but it won't work for us because they sort of have the, if it worked, it, that's sort of proof that it works, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I like that you said steal, you know, or pay homage to, you know, we can... We don't want to replicate what someone else is doing. We need to make up uniquely our own and it mm. needs to be true to our, our performance and it needs to be true to the spirit of what we're doing. That's one of the things I tell my clients is so often the social media content or the trailer, not the trailer, the social media content, more Twitter, or Instagram, Facebook, will kind of feel too salesy. And I'm like, tell me about the theme of the show. Mm. Uh, you know, ask, obviously, if you're doing a piece of theater, there's probably some compelling thought provoking moments there. Don't be afraid to bring those up on social media and, and force your audience to confront some of the things that they might confront on the show. It could be a comedy, it could be a tragedy, just straight drama, whatever it is, there's some interesting things there and bring those up in, uh, in on social media. I always think that, that one of the things that, um, that there's, and there's two schools of thought because this can be really hard to convince people who are um, sort of old school actors uh, who've been doing it for like 20 years to do this. But what happens in the rehearsal hall is fascinating 
to people who aren't there. Absolutely. Those moments, those things, those discoveries that are made in the rehearsal hall, and that's material that you that, that you can post. But I also know that people who've been in the business for a long time, they're not comfortable with that. Hmm. So that's a fine line as well. There's sort of like a, a, a certain, um, the idea of like what happens in the, in the rehearsal hall is sacred. Nice. We can't take pictures in here. We can't talk about what happens in here. Um, we need to keep it safe from the audience. And yet for the audience, that all of that stuff is fascinating. How many times do we watch behind the scenes of course. stuff from our favorite movies and TV shows? Yeah. And, and if you're working on a big production, there's union rules and regulations about any time you get a camera you yeah. know, backstage during a rehearsal. So you really need to have buy-in from everyone on the team and make sure everyone's okay with it. That's obviously a very big concern. But no, I agree with you 100%. On, on, you know, peeling the onion skin about the process is, is definitely something that people are interested in seeing. Mm -hmm. And again, in do, doing that, posting that content regularly and, and, yeah. and taking them along, you, along with you on the journey. Yes, and yeah. for you, it's a journey of discovery. You know, as you're working through the piece, you're discovering it. There's no reason why the audience, uh, as small as it is, and we're talking even if it's, you know, you got 50 people, take them on that journey. Well, the thing about it, you know, even if it's 50 people, that's 50 people who are invested mm -hmm. in that exactly. journey. Exactly. And that can make them into advocates and other salespeople. And, you know, they're, they're your sale, they're your, your, what's the word? Your advocates or your, your yeah. army, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I learned, I'll be honest, you know, you talked about it takes a lot of time. Um, a lot of what I learned and what I was inspired by happened um, from Lisa Middleton. Lisa's now the vice president of marketing and communications at the Segerson uh, Center for the Arts. It's in California. She was at Lyric Theater in Chicago before that. But she started out uh, as the director of marketing and communications at Stratford. Uh, she was there, I think, until around 2013. And when social media kicked in, um, Lisa and her small team responded to every single tweet, every single Facebook comment. And they were, and I can tell you, some of the people that worked there were the last thing they ever wanted to do is ever go on Twitter again because they spent <laughs> so much time responding. But boy, did she build a solid foundation. It was so, so impressive. And then, and you know, she had one or two opening nights just for the, you know, 10 or 20 regular Twitter people that, you know, she recognized mm -hmm. were sort of, this is before influencer marketing was a thing. Right. Um, but yeah, they worked really hard at building that audience. One person at a time. Yeah. Um, now you've worked with some big companies, you know, you're doing all this, you know, help people sell tickets and, and, and marketing for, for all of these, these digital shows and other shows. In this in this particular landscape, what could a small independent theater learn from one of the bigger companies that you've worked with? Well, that that's exactly exactly um, what I just mentioned there. With that, so Stratford, even though they're a big company, they treated every interaction on social media as as it was important as their. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they get big donors and all those all that fancy big money. But they sure made, and I was just a regular, this is before I did Stratford Festival Reviews, the website. I mean, they made me feel like my opinion cared. And I was like, wow. So when I tweeted something, oh, I just love that production of whatever it was, Fiddler on the Roof, they would say thank you. Like, they wouldn't just give me a heart. They would actually say thank you, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So if small companies 
the one thing I guess you can learn is to treat every interaction as being valuable. And I say this to all my artists, especially on Facebook, mm -hmm. Facebook and Instagram, the algorithm is looking for how quickly you respond to stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things that the algorithm looks for, but one of them is that two-way communication. That's what Facebook's mm -hmm. all about. So yeah, you got to go on Facebook or Instagram once a day. And if you put something up and someone said, Hey, this looks cool. You just got to give them a, you know, a like, it's better if you comment and you can cut and paste. There's no reason why you can't cut and paste. There's a tool I use called text expander, which allows you to cut and paste with fields. So you can add their name and it sounds canned, but if you do it well, it's not canned. Um, so, but the, the message is to so have the right tools, take a bit of time get organized. It's really the one thing I find with smaller organizations is they don't take the time to make a plan and, and assign some roles to people and make it easy for everyone involved. So um, I did a thing for a relatively mid-sized company. And one of the things with Facebook is when you put a Facebook post up, you have a you know 90 minute window to really get the algorithm excited about it. Mm -hmm. So let's get everyone we can in the company and the crew to read to share it and to comment on it uh, and to like it. The way to make it easy for them is to say, hey, that post is going out at three o'clock every day. So it, or every three o'clock every Tuesday, whatever, make it consistent so that everyone on the team knows, oh yeah, it's Monday morning. I better check and, and like that Facebook comment and share that Facebook comment as opposed to just doing it when it feels right because then it's like, mm -hmm. oh no, I got to email everybody. So a little bit of uh, scheduling, a little bit of organization with the team and as a small team, you kind of have a bit of an advantage on some levels because things like MailChimp are free. Like, I mean, I have a MailChimp yeah. account with thousands of email addresses and I'm paying I mean, every, especially during the pandemic, I didn't send any emails. And I guess I could have archived and deleted the emails, but it didn't bother. Uh, but yeah, MailChimp's free for 2000 or less um, subscribers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, an, that's an incredibly powerful tool as oh, well. So powerful. I think for me, like one of the, one of the mistakes that a lot of uh, independent companies sometimes make is because they get so caught up in the creation of the project, they don't think about the marketing of the project until it's too late. Hey, well, that's look, this is I study theater and I was always so disappointed when we had a great show and no one came. I wouldn't say no one, but you know, like that's part yeah. of the reason I'm doing, I mean, that and the fact that I wasn't the best actor in the world, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I would just get so frustrated when people wouldn't show up for something that I worked so hard to create. So now I encourage people as much as they can to think about and think about a, a, like a, the extended, like right from the beginning of inception to your mm -hmm. closing night to create a schedule, create some targets and goals, you know, especially around opening night, you know, it's, and if it's a virtual event, you've got that that week before the uh, ticket goes on the, the week before the opening night of the virtual event or the, if it's a one night thing, that's when you're going to get most of your sales. So you have to build up to that on social mm -hmm. media or on email. So you're going to have that seven day ramp up and you're going to be ready for the sales and you're going to get the people excited about the sales. So you're not six weeks out. My, my recommendation is usually six weeks out when you do your launch, you do some kind of offer, a little bit of an incentive. Maybe it's like a, a $5 discount or buy one ticket and get one free something. And then you shut that off and then your numbers are going to go down and then you come back in that last two week period, you know, throughout the six week period, you're creating content, creating consistent content backstage. Some of the things we talked about rehearsals, some of the themes of the show. And then that last two week period, particularly the last 10 days is getting a little bit more aggressive and letting people know time's running out. You know, we only have so many seats. 
give them a little bit of a push and don't hesitate to give them a push your audience mm -hmm. yeah yeah i remember i was talking with uh the the fringe artist uh, uh jillian english uh, a few years ago and she was talking about the fact that when she creates a show the first thing she does she creates the title mm -hmm. and then she decides how she's going to market it and then she writes it <laughs> wow so it's like she's thinking about about how she's going to market her show from the beginning. And I always think of I mean I don't write like that, but no. like the idea of as soon as I've done something, then I start thinking about about how what is it going to look like? What will the marketing look like? What was what's the strong imagery that I'm going to have in my poster like right from the start because if I'm waiting until the couple the few weeks before the show opens or even during rehearsals to do that i don't have time to do that you've got to do it like like you said from inception from right at the beginning and make sure that you've got your material ready to go so that you're not doing it at the last minute no it's so for the small companies even for the big companies much better to have a plan going forward and then deviate or fall off the wagon or, you know, in the best case scenario, execute the plan. But with no plan at all, yeah, you're going to struggle. I mean, and I'm glad you mentioned the French Fest. That's how I start. That's where I really realized the power of marketing because uh, Gary, Gary Yates, my buddy and I, we were at the uh, Edmonton French Festival. We just arrived as street performers, you know, so we didn't have a show for the theater. And then the theater became available and we quickly, really quickly started making posters. And I mean, we went nuts like mm -hmm. we put our poster on the i'll never forget this we put our it was called something strange we put the poster up on a one-way street sign so it was lit all it was was the word something strange and the white arrow of a one-way street sign and it looked so pretty it ended up in a picture in the newspaper but you know we got in trouble because we were i don't know what the word is defacing public property <laughs> and you know we were the first ones to, to duct tape posters to the ground you know this is a long mm. time ago um, so I realized, you know, there's a million shows going on. We have to work it. And, and we did. And that really was a big lesson for, you know, the street performing first. And then we went from street performing to, uh, fringe festival theaters. We were, we were the first Canadians, uh, at the fringe festival in Hong Kong. I don't remember what year it was, but, Ooh. um, yeah, probably maybe 80, I don't know. I'm so bad with numbers, but mm. and again, so I'm showing up in a strange town with nothing, you know, we were, I was on the front page of the, of the South China Morning Post entertainment section. Like I worked it. I'm like, okay, we have to get some attention here. Yeah. It is a lot You've got to find ways to do that, especially at the big French festivals. It's yeah. so hard, you know? And if you don't, and this is terrible. I've said this before, but like when that, when the fringe guide would come out, I would pick up my fringe guide and I would start flipping through it to try to find shows and I would write shows off based on their imagery. Oh, of course. You know, if they, if it looked like somebody, like, they, oh, we have to get an image, quick, draw something. And they, like, threw some kind of picture together in crayon or something. And unless that was the show. Exactly. Like Ralph Steadman, you know, that, like, yeah. it's, it's beautiful scribbles. Sure. Yeah. But in, in a lot of cases, it's like they, you could see the shows that threw together an image. Yeah. And that unfortunately hurts, like, when I'm trying to choose shows. That affects my opinion of the show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times. You mentioned the the, the Stratford uh, Festival reviews. How long have you been? Can you, like approximately how long have you been doing that reviews? Around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Hmm. Um, 
so it's a website that's dedicated to the Stratford Festival and the artists of the Stratford Festival. Uh, it's the number one independent site for information about the festival. And so it started out with me just wanting to, I don't write reviews myself on the site. I collect all the other reviews. So it became the go-to place for anyone who wanted to know what show should I see. Because this is what happened. I went, I read, I'm going to tell you the guy's name. I don't usually say this. I read a review of Cabaret uh, from Richard Azunian in the Toronto Star. Five stars, best show ever. Got to go see it. My wife and I spent, you know, 200 bucks for tickets at the end of the day, drive, babysitter. You know, it was a lot of money. And I'm like, that was not a five-star show. It was good. It wasn't a five-star show. And then the next day I read Kelly Nestruck's review in the Globe and Mail. And he, I don't say he didn't tear it apart, but he was way more critical. And I thought, I can't be the only one. <laughs> so I, I just created a website where I collected all the reviews. You get the Toronto Star, the mm. Chicago Times, the New York Times. You get different bloggers in Toronto and, and anywhere else. Um, and it just took off. And uh, I have to say, like, it's had, a, I don't know, I haven't looked in a while, but much more, or many more than 2 million um, hits. And I haven't looked for a while because I haven't, there's nothing going on this year, really. But yeah, it really made me um, positive and it made me feel good about the future of arts journalism in the sense that I know there's a demand. I could tell by the way people were coming to that website and spending on average four minutes uh, looking at the content there, that there was an interest in good arts journalism. So I would do feature stories, I would do interviews, but I didn't do reviews. And I had some other writers as well. Um, but it's also discouraging because, you know, Richard Azunian doesn't have a job and there's no full-time arts reporter at the Toronto Star now. We've got two people who mm. kind of, one of them has another full-time job. Uh, Robert Cushman's no longer with the National Post. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Now Magazine, Glenn Sumi over there. Mm. So it's, I feel for the arts because mm. arts journalism is disappearing. It's hard to get a story now in a newspaper, as you mm -hmm. said earlier. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a downer. Sorry, Phil. I mean, you no, know, that's like, a, but it's, it's a fact. It's a fact that it is, a fact. you know, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was this, there was a, a course on how to do, uh, uh, theater, theater criticism, hmm. you know, I remember that. And they sort of did a, a whole, uh, apprenticeship sort of with Glenn Sumi at now. And they wrote the reviews for the fringe festival that year. Hmm. Um, but again, it's all well and good to have a course for, for arts journalism, but where are these people going to write? I know. I know. And that's the sad thing, I think. Well, it's going to be people. It's, I mean, it's going to be people like me and other people. Um, I'm, and well, what's the, there's a, there's another sort of, uh, what is it? There's a sort of, he does classical music and classical theater. It's a call. Mm. There's a website in Toronto. It's actually pretty good for that highbrow. I don't, I don't want to use your highbrow, but he's more established. Yeah. By, oh, actually, I can remember the guy's name. But yeah, there's, there's definitely room for more. And I, I'm, I'm kind of out of the, out of the, fringe festival circuit now but i'd be mm -hmm. like someone should really be doing a website about fringe festival shows that would aggregate content about fringe festival shows because so much of what's happening at fringe festival shows tours and I, look don't get me i didn't make any money off stratford festival <laughs> there are ads on the site um so i do charge some people for advertising because i deliver them a real specific audience but at the end of the mm -hmm. day it doesn't even come close to paying for the hours that i put into it my host i mean because of the website when it when a show comes out at the beginning of the season, I'll get thousands and thousands of hits in a really short mm -hmm. period of time. So I had to get a, a virtual private network 
and a, a virtual private server rather. So my hosting fees are expensive. Like I'm, it's not a profitable thing. Yeah. I, I care and I'm, you know, dedicated to sharing and, and trying to spread the word about good theater. Same thing with the, yeah. you know what a pod, we're not making money off a podcast too. We're That's for sure. We're not a money maker. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it's going to take more people like us, independents, who care about the arts and and the key thing is to make it discoverable though and it's really mm. important to get your stuff out there you know whether you're tweeting with the right hashtags or you know using instagram or TikTok. Uh, my case stratford festival reviews the title is i get a ton of uh, search engine uh results i mean there, sure there was a year when i was getting calls people were calling me because they would search uh, stratford festival and my thing came up second and they'd call me by mistake it was brutal for one year <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore but yeah Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's interesting because you've mentioned TikTok a couple of times. Oh, yeah. Um, and that is the thing because it doesn't work like other platforms. It's a little bit more complicated to be successful on TikTok. It takes more creativity. It takes a bit more work. And I think that uh, there's no like quick fix to... I'm just going to go on TikTok and we'll, 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 we'll be successful because we're on TikTok. It certainly doesn't work that way. No. Have you, have you, have you figured out anything about TikTok or is it? You have to be playful. You have to be playful. I think, you know, so for me, Twitter is more my jive, my jam, Mm. the old guy. Twitter is, I feel more at home in Twitter because I'm, you know, at heart, a creative person and kind of, I like the concept of news and I was a director of news programming here in London, Ontario for a while. And that's what Twitter is all about. What's happening now? What's breaking? You know, I'm, if I'm stuck in the border when I used to cross the border, I, my instinct was, oh, let's find out what's happening on Twitter. Maybe there'll be an answer there. It's kind of like radio used to be. So that's, I fit, and I have a hard time being, I'm a playful guy in private, but in public, I'm not super private. I'm not super playful. But yeah, TikTok's all about being playful and being fun, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. whereas Twitter's all about what's happening now, what's going on, um, TikTok's way more about that. And I'm just, that's not me. So I don't, I'm, I don't have an account there. I just don't feel at home there. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't feel like Hey, if you're doing a, a musical theater show, like you need to be on TikTok. I mean, speaking of musical theater shows, I mean, TikTok created a musical for New Year's. Like the, the whole Ratatouille, the musical <laughs> thing that happened wouldn't have happened if, if TikTok hadn't made it happen. Right. So like that stuff is, is, is out there. Uh, I think also the star kids um, who are interesting because they, they crowdfund every one of their productions, mm. but they also then put them online. So it's like, yeah, it's a weird, like very successfully full productions that they've managed to successfully crowdfund. And then they also sell out and put the show online on YouTube. Amazing. So weird stuff. Um, your theater origin story, you've mentioned being a mm. busker. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you've, you've done, you've done busking, you've done fringe festivals, you've aggregated, uh, theater reviews, you've done podcasts. What, what brought you into theater? What's your theater origin story in the first place? It goes, I'd say it probably goes back to my mom who loved music, classical music and loved the theater. Um, but we didn't have a lot of money, so we couldn't <laughs> go see a lot of shows. So we saw community theater. Um, and then my mother was a volunteer with the Lakeshore Players behind the scenes, never on stage. 
and then I kind of got into the to the lecture players, um, and then I went and studied theater at John Abbott College in in Montreal, and uh, yeah, you know, and I still was kind of I was more of a I was interested in variety, the variety arts. So I'll never forget when my mom took me to Saint Wilfrid Peltier in Montreal. We saw Victor Borg, and I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was so uh, it spoke to me. <laughs> Uh, a classical, a classical pianist having fun and being playful. Everything I said that I'm not a minute ago. <laughs> uh, and then, but I. So what really, really made it for me, and it's um, not a coincidence, I suppose, was when I went to see uh, with school uh, the death of a salesman at uh, the Stratford Festival. Uh, it was Guy Sprung's production, and I remember getting there, and we had like the the last row at the Avon Theater. And I was like, oh, that sucks. And then literally within 15 minutes, I was like right on stage with everybody. I can still remember vividly the closing of the show. Mm. I still remember crying at the closing of the show. And that was a game changer for me. Mm. Yeah. Um, as far as, as far as like doing theater, you sort of still getting, like, said I'm, I'm still that you're getting, not. Like I'm, I'm still, as I told you that story, like it's tingling in my spine. Yeah. Like, yeah. and, 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 but then it made it hard for me because when you see theater, that's so good. And then you go and see theater. That's not so good. And I'm super critical. I'm you know, that kind mm -hmm. of guy. Um, so I would be dismissive early in my days. I'd be dismissive of stuff unless it was great. So I remember just being frustrated, oh, you know, and I couldn't appreciate what people were bringing to the table, you know, mm. if something wasn't perfect. And then I was in New York visiting a friend of mine who was a variety artist, Jeff McBride, the magician. And I went and saw a Torch Song trilogy. Hmm. I saw the production with Estelle Getty. I'm getting tingles again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Estelle Getty's, uh, Harvey Firestein, you know, what's his name? The, um, Carrie Bradshaw's husband. <laughs> I can't believe I can't believe his name. Uh, the guy from, uh, oh my God. Anyway, it was an amazing, like I'll never, you know, those, hmm. but they're few and far between. But boy, when they hit, did they ever hit? Yeah, you know, I I found you know, I think we've all sat through shows that were not particularly good, and I I, I have spent a lot of time frustrated in theaters oh, as well. Yeah, but what I started to do eventually was it, what I would have to do is start to think about like, okay, so this isn't working for me. Instead of just sitting there getting frustrated and stewing, I would have to start <laughs> thinking about like, so specifically, why is this not working for me? What what about this production is not working? Who's actually doing what's what what is working, what isn't working? And I'd have to get really analytical about it. But I've found that super helpful. Of course. My aha moment was when uh you know everyone's seen bad productions of Mamma Mia, and they can mm -hmm. be bad. So Mamma Mia was on stage here at the Grand in London and uh I mean I have an obligation to go. you know, I have an obligation to go for a variety of reasons and Susie, my wife, was happy, and I was like, oh, God. It was in spring. It was that fabulous production uh, with Adam Brazier. I believe that's his last name from the East Coast. Mm -hmm. It was in the original production in Toronto. Right. And, ah, man, was that ever a great show. Mm. It was fabulous. Mm. <laughs> I was like, whoa, did you guys ever win me over? It was so much fun. Actually, same thing with The Prom. I went and saw The Prom, Bob Martin's huh. uh, The Prom in New York, and... Uh, Boy, that was a fact. I was so disappointed that show didn't, uh, 
you'll survive the, the yeah. that way. But um, anyway, I think it's going to do really well in regional and, and certainly in high school productions as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Adam Brazier. I saw Adam Brazier as Frankenfurter in oh. uh, in uh, 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 Rocky the Rocky Horror, Horror Show uh, uh, years ago. And I was pretty skeptical because, you know, it is hard to do that show and not have people think, well, Tim Curry was better. Right. You know, but he did it. And I was like, well, okay. Cause everything hinges on him. And if I'm comparing him with Tim Curry, then like that is not a great show, but he, the two, two great Frankenfurters that I've seen, Juan Kioran and, uh, and uh, uh, Adam Razor. I miss Juan Kioran. That would have been something. Well, Kieran did, uh, for, I was in theater school back in 1991. Um, and, uh, Juan Kieran, uh, was a Frankenfurter in a production at the Broadview, sorry, the, 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 the Bathurst street theater. Oh, wow. How much fun would that have been? It was pretty incredible. It was pretty incredible. Hmm. Um, as I sort of like draw us to a close here, um, one of the things that I ask everybody during the last year or so uh, is about about joy what has been giving you Someone joy me that question. each day <laughs> because i've been asking that question of myself mm. Bill, and i don't know um there's always sex that's always a go <laughs> but you know that's it's that's an honest answer i don't know is an honest answer oh i thought you thought i thought i wasn't kidding about the sex that's an honest <laughs> answer <laughs> Um, and luckily I've been married happily for many, many years. So I hope that puts some joy in some people's lives. <laughs> Just the <laughs> fact that there's that, you know what? I, uh, I struggled a lot. I did struggle a lot at the beginning of all of this. I did because I was on my way. Actually, I was, um, I was in Winnipeg doing a conference about arts marketing. And there's a wonderful community. I lived in Winnipeg for a few years and there's a wonderful community there. So whether about, 25 of us at the Prairie Theater Exchange, Carmen Johnson, fabulous guy, put it together. Uh, so I was speaking there about what I do, arts marketing and helping people uh, sell tickets using digital marketing. And I was, my next um, stop was going to be Manhattan. I was basically going to fly home for two nights and then fly to New York. I was doing an arts marketing presentation in Greenwich Village, my first time speaking in the United States. And I got a call and it's like, it's canceled. And I was like, hmm. my career, and I had spent earlier in the year, I did a couple of days with Drayton Entertainment in their offices. A lot of time I'll just sort of work remotely, but they brought me into their office. We did some really intense training with their entire uh, marketing team. It was just so wonderful. And I just thought, what a great year we're gonna have. I'll be working in tandem with Drayton. I'm gonna have some new clients in New York. It was the best year ever. And then it happened and I got really, really down on myself. Mm. Uh, so one of the things I did to find joy, and it's, I don't know, it is joy, it is joy. It took me a while to get here. It's I. this is gonna sound crazy. Every morning now, I've never been a walking guy in the suburbs. I lived in the cities, I walk, you, you walk everywhere. You don't need to think about going for a walk. And I'm in the suburbs, so there's nowhere to walk essentially. I get up now every morning, put on my long johns that I got in Winnipeg when I lived there. And I go, I'll have a glass of water, take a vitamin or two and get out of the house and walk for 25 minutes. And I mm. did it initially so my sleep would be better. As you know, if you're in the arts, your circadian rhythms get completely screwed up. So mm. one of the key things to increase your quality of sleep and get your circadian rhythms back on track is to see the sun coming up. It doesn't matter what time it is. It could be 10, 
can be seven. So I get up in the morning. The first thing I do is I expose myself to sunlight. If it's there, I go for a walk. And I wish, and I do some deep breathing exercises. I'm by myself. I really try to focus. I was shocked at how within three or four weeks, just that one little exercise was making me feel better to the point where I described it to my wife one point. I said, I feel like a puppy, you know, when a puppy's like, the one they want to get out. That's how easy it is. Cause and I used to not be great in the morning either. I was never great. So that's something that has brought me joy for sure. Mm. I look forward to that time every day in the fresh air and sunny day. That's great. Um, yeah. So I don't know, it doesn't sound joyful, but at the end of the day, it is one of those special times in my day. And, and you, know, you know, spending time I, with my wife and my son, we're at home yeah. and we get to hang out together. So that's my, my yeah. son has become an amazing cook. We give him one, he's 14. It's like Tuesday night, mm. your night to cook and, and seeing him succeed brings me an immense amount of joy. Nice. That's great. Yeah. It's a tough, it's and, a good question though, especially. I mean, it's, it is a tough one. And, and, and I think that I, that's why I ask it because it, it forces people to think about it, but also um, I think it's good to, for other people to hear mm. about about the joy that, that 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 other people are finding, even if it's a small bit of joy. Mm-hmm. And I always, I'm a, I'm a, you know, um, my guilty pleasure is, you know, uh, either comedians and cars with coffee or Penn and Teller fool us. I, that kind of mm. stuff takes me out of my head. Mm-hmm. I need to laugh for sure. Yeah. Now, if somebody was looking for, if they wanted to talk to you about um, about uh, uh, marketing. And, and how they could sell more tickets to their shows. Um, they can find you at KeithThomasek.com. KeithThomasek.com, absolutely. And um, and, and de- never hesitate to reach out to me. I'm always interested in hearing from people. And I learn so much from people that I talk to by hearing about their struggles. So, you know, mm-hmm. no, you know, I'm open to anything. Uh, and I just, I, I just started a new thing called the Arts Marketing Mastermind Group. I don't know if I told you about this. It's mm-hmm. a group of eight people and I take you through 10 weeks of training. So once a week for eight weeks in a row, we get together in a small group of people and we work through, I'll do some training. So I'm leading you along, you know, things like digital marketing, Facebook, Instagram, how to get the best out of your email list, how to make YouTube work for you, whatever that means for your organization. Uh, and then there's also, I've got a, a bank of 15 training videos with things like how to integrate the Facebook pixel. Like I can't tell you how many arts organizations still don't even use the Facebook pixel. So they'll be, even if they're spending a hundred dollars on Facebook, if they had the pixel integrated into their website and, or their ticketing fulfillment system, they get much more return from the hundred dollars. Right. Um, by using conversion ads and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. So it's called the Arts Marketing Mastermind Group. The next session begins February 24th. I don't know when this is going to air, but I'm going to do another one in uh, probably March, early March, April, around that period. Awesome. Now, awesome. Wanna, can That's I great. give you guys a promo code and save $100? I, I, we didn't talk about that. So you can get it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Let's throw that in there. What are we going to make the promo code? You want to make it stage-worthy I mean, or fill? Yeah, make it stage-worthy. Okay, stage-worthy. I'm writing this down. Sure. Yeah, there's that's, that's an impromptu co- promo code right there. I know. I have to go fill it in, make sure it works on the website. Um, yeah. So keiththomasek.com, and then it's called the Arts Marketing Mastermind. I'm really excited. Like I've just started doing this because of, I've had demand. And sometimes when you help people solve the same problems over and over again, you recognize patterns. You go, okay, let's all work this out together. And mm-hmm. and if I can't solve the problem in that one hour meeting uh, once a week for 10 weeks, someone else in the room has probably been through the same thing you're going through and we'll figure it out together. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much, Keith. Oh, no, my pleasure. And thank you for all you're doing for the arts. Like, 
I, I, you know, I feel your pain because I'm sure there are days when you go, why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, but you know, you just keep plugging along. Yeah. And it's the joy. Like I can't, I can't wait. Well, I gotta be honest. I've been, I didn't, I, I, I have to be honest. Um, the most joyful thing that I've done this year was I worked with the comedian, Ron James. Mm-hmm. We did a virtual show uh, and I've been with Ron for about four years, helping him with social media marketing and Facebook. We had 3,400 people uh, purchase tickets. It was $30 a ticket uh, for a virtual event. And those people were so happy. Like it, mm. we created so much levity and joy in people's lives that that was by far and away the most joyful thing that happened to me in the last little while. Because, um, yeah, people were in desperate need of laughs. And, yeah. and the response we got from the audience really like was the wind beneath my wings for a couple of months. Yeah. They were so happy. Absolutely. So it can be it's, done. The other side it, of that is you can, you know, people are willing to pay um, for virtual experiences if you nurture them along and, and offer them something that's going to, you know, get them where they want to go. Well, that's the thing is, is one of the things that I've been talking about with, with a few people is the problem that we have is that everybody's doing virtual meetings. Mm-hmm. Everybody who has yeah. a job is yeah. spending a lot of time in yeah. virtual meetings. Yeah. And it is very difficult for somebody to who's spent all day in virtual meetings to feel like now this is entertainment. And so you can't just, you've got to do something and make it a a virtual experience. It can't just be a zoom window with nothing interesting happening in it. Well, I'll tell you, all this was, was a zoom window with Ron standing in his living room. (laughs) But I mean, this is the thing is that, is that an engaging performer, if he's, if it's if it's him standing in his living room and not just a, like a Brady Bunch grid of, of of faces, that's right. That's more entertaining than everybody's Zoom meeting. But it's a point you a good point you make. I've heard clients who said we're not because I've had great success with Ron and other people on Zoom. Um, but I've had clients who say we're not doing it on Zoom. We want to make sure people understand it's not another Zoom meeting. And I'm like, that's okay too. There's other ways. You don't have to do Zoom. Mm-hmm. Well, Keith, thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate uh, the talk, the conversation today. Hey, no, Phil, thank you so much. I, 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 this was really fun. I've been listening for, well, years, and uh, it's an honor to be here. This is so cool.